0: And I've always thought that that why is an orchestra, the the activity of making orchestral music, why is that so well uh, received and absorbed and integrated in cultures around the world? I mean, in in Tokyo, there are probably more orchestras than any other city on earth. Uh, I think it's because the, the musicians themselves and the public, they understand that it's an idealized social paradigm. So uh, there's a structure, of a conductor and concertmaster and principal players and then the section players. The protocols are observed from, from the time that they tune the orchestra to the time that you give the downbeat. Everybody has the same material, but different parts. We begin, we have cadences, we have ups and downs, and we all arrive in harmony. So that's kind of a, a paradigm that almost everybody could appreciate um, wanting for the structure of their society to work as efficiently and harmoniously as, as an orchestra.
1: Today, I'm talking to the conductor, David Handel. Hi, David.
0: It's nice to meet you face to face.
1: Yes, it's so lovely to meet you here on Zoom. David, uh, where are you based at the moment?
0: In Florida, in uh, St. Petersburg, Florida.
1: Okay. Um, I
0: just moved back.
1: Uh, are you there from uh, Florida originally?
0: No, I'm originally from New York, from Buffalo, New York.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But lots of moving around the, the world. And uh, my wife and I, about 11 years ago, decided to move back to the united states and so we just picked this area because it's it's very nice
1: lovely weather
0: st petersburg oh okay st petersburg tampa
1: okay yeah but i mean it's lovely weather all year round there
0: well there are a few hurricanes once in a while but other than that it's very nice (laughs) and you're in vienna
1: i'm in vienna yes But David, I've I've read about uh, all your wonderful work, all the awards you've uh, been um, uh, receiving, and uh, and yes, you've been all over all the continents that you've worked and conducted. Um, Was this initially what you hoped to do? Was, uh, I mean, was this the dream to go all over the world?
0: Yes, in part, but the, my, Initial plan when I finished my studies and when I finished as assistant conductor in, in Leipzig, my initial plan was to be based in Berlin and to uh, be mostly in that that uh, part of the world. But it was that was 1990, I think. Mm-hmm. So it was the worst possible moment to try to establish oneself in Berlin because there were so many people from Eastern Europe who moved. Uh, into Berlin, and uh, I, without exaggerating, I looked for an apartment for six months and couldn't find one. And uh, But I did finally find an apartment, and I paid my Abstand and uh, then I thought I would go to London for a break. And when I came back, the landlord, landlord was nowhere to be found, and he ran off with my Abstand Oh, so no. I, and they told me he did this with i don't know maybe 20 other people so he has a nice retirement fund and uh, so i decided to make a change of plans so i moved to uh, to chicago and that's where i really got things started and and uh, because the, the go ahead
1: no uh, as a young conductor from america was there, was europe the Place where you you felt you had to go.
0: Yes, um, for a var- variety of reasons.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, first of all, I wanted to be with an historic orchestral institution as an assistant conductor, and what could be better than the oldest public orchestra in the world, the Gewandhaus? And I, my violin teacher, had introduced me to quote uh, Mazur. They had recorded together quite a bit. And so Kurt Mazur auditioned me and invited me to go to Leipzig. And of course it was still, at that time, uh, the Deutsche Demokratische, Deutsche Demokratische Republik, which mm. for a uh, North American would be, seemed to be a very strange choice. My parents were very concerned, of course. Really? Mm. But I think it was just the greatest thing. Mm. And, um, and I, I had the objective of uh, how can an American orchestra, whether it's North America or South America, or, um, be as relevant in a community culturally, artistically, as the Gewandhaus or the Vienna Philharmonic or the Berlin Philharmonic is to their respective communities? So that was kind of a um, um, a cultural and sociological interest and in priority for me.
1: Yeah, because in America you do it a bit different. I mean, you have you have to have sponsors for your orchestras, and you're not uh, sort of uh, it's it's not like in Europe where you are at a at a base. Am I right? So that's what I yes. understood from yeah. And it's it's sometimes also musicians that have a another career, and that they um, they play sort of on the side in an orchestra?
0: Well, it depends. If it's a major orchestra, and there are many, uh, there are substantive full-time positions and their okay. the musicians are just dedicated to the orchestra. But you're, of course, right that the private institutions, which depend on uh, private sector uh, sponsorships, foundations, and whatnot, uh, so the economic structure is very different and as a result uh, i would say that the programming is very often influenced by simply ticket sales ticket revenues uh, which is positive in some ways and negative in a variety of other ways uh, i'll give you an example there's a, there's a strong tendency to uh, prioritize in the context of a year's programming Pops concerts and rock symphonic concerts and things which, uh, depending on the the group or the music, can be pretty um, trivial. and And the uh, comparison I often make is that you know you you can't survive just on uh, cupcakes or or I donuts. Know. You need mm-hmm. to have protein and and fiber and so so. Um, and it it depends what part of the world. Um, I've worked a lot in, in Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and I very much love this in, these environments, but I also worked more than anything in Latin America. And uh, there, it depends where you are. Some of the orchestras uh, are sponsored entirely by the, the state, uh, which has the advantage of being able to, hopefully, Uh, programs, substantive uh, concert seasons with a structure and with a great variety of music. Uh, However, the disadvantage in Latin America sometimes, not always, is that you might receive on Monday a call from the Ministry of Culture and they want you to play for the Ministry of Sports in uh, an athletic arena and uh, some kind of... A superficial program. So there are advantages and disadvantages to all of these models.
1: Yeah. And I've also spoken to conductors and, and we talk about this thing where you people want to hear the same things over and over again, you know, like the, I would say, the popular classical music, but then it's really working into these programs, unknown works that people haven't heard before. But I, I assume that when you are working with sponsors and it's money and it's ticket sales, you want to give the audience what they want.
0: I think there is you know, there is a healthy balance to be struck.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, the conductor in designing a program needs to think very, um, has to be somewhat um, creative or ingenious about strategically programming works which have perhaps not been heard uh for example i'll give you a recent example we we uh, had a program in quito and paul hindemitz um as uh, um uh, matis Maler, which is one of the great symphonies of the 20th century had never been performed in ecuador ever and it's a magnificent work and it's a work where which enriches the musicians uh, tremendously. It's a very rewarding work artistically. That symphony in Europe would probably be the work that you might close a program with because it's tremendous and impactful. But I decided to program it on the first part of the program. And on the second part, we had the Greek piano concerto, which everybody knows and everybody loves. So it was a very healthy balance in, in the program. So I do often conduct contemporary music or works from the repertoire which are not so often played, but it's a question of placing them carefully in the context of that program and over the course of the entire season.
1: And now, uh, what about new music, you know, like new composers or living composers?
0: Well, it's kind of the same story. You have to... um, you have to believe in the composer. You have to believe in that, that composer's work, For first of all. And uh, and you have to think again contextually. So another example, uh, I had programmed for this year uh, a work by a contemporary composer from New York, David Winkler, Winklater, uh, who wrote uh, his Fifth Symphony, which is for orchestra and organ. But of course, it's that would be completely new, but it would have been um, a premiere. Uh, But for the second half, the Saint-Saëns Organ Symphony, which is, uh, of course, a very romantic language, which um, is easy to digest. And it's a very powerful work. And most listeners know it. And even if they don't, it's almost impossible to miss the, the point in the expression.
1: But and I, then, also, sorry.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I was just going to add that for years now, I think fifteen years, I've been conducting an orchestra in Chile, which has an emphasis on contemporary music.
1: Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also read that you uh, commission a lot of work.
0: I have, um, in in different contexts. Mm-hmm. Some uh, have been in Latin America um creating let's say a fusion between their folkloric rhythms and idioms uh but in with an orchestral palette and then in other cases just uh brand new works by contemporary composers like david Winkler or like edward green um who are two um important north american composers and i enjoy these collaborations very much
1: so do you do you uh, first uh, see what the what the composer does and then commission specifically, or do you do you give guidelines? Do you have a program in mind when you do the uh, commissions?
0: It's a great question. Um, when we have, for example, a composition competition, then I I define very specific guidelines. Uh, for example, it should be. Uh, uh, poem for orchestra with uh, the following um, instrumental elements, two, two oboes, two flutes, whatever. Uh, and it should be no more than um, 10 or 12 minutes maximum. Um, and it might be based on a certain thematic material. If I'm working with a composer for just a commission coming from me, initi- initiated by me, uh, it's because I find the composer's uh, output to be so interesting that I wa- would like the composer to be able to just let his uh, imagination uh, fly and take a life of its own.
1: That's amazing. And But do you get uh, composers that, because of the fact that you um, do these commissions, do you have composers that approach you with their work
0: Yes, lots, lots and lots, and right. it's not always possible. Um, and also, you have to find the right place to uh, present their work. Um, there's a composer, Iranian, uh, Iranian North American composer, composer Reza Vali. excellent composer, just marvelous. And he wanted for us uh, with the Orlando Symphony to uh, record. Uh, two of his symphonic poems and i wanted to do, to do this very much very much but it economically it just was not possible between his resources his sponsors resources and the cost of the orchestra so mm-hmm. sometimes these uh, initiatives are just frustrated by very practical very down to earth reasons it's it's uh,
1: this is also this is always so sad for me because we we don't realize that it's also a business, you know, and, and of course you as a conductor, you also have to take that into consideration.
0: Yes, absolutely. You know, you try to have your feet on the ground and your head in the sky, and sometimes never the point shall meet.
1: Do you have a business mind? Do you, Are you a businessman?
0: Theoretically, I've done well in that sense. I've raised lots of resources for the different orchestras I've conducted. Uh, so I'm able to... Um, um, I think it's a question of creating trust with uh, with a potential sponsor and that you have a track record. Um, with the orchestra in Ecuador, that was very difficult. And that's and one of the reasons I've decided to to why I decided to resign was because the, the there were so many sponsorship opportunities, but the government structure made it all, almost impossible to utilize the resources I was able to to raise because of the mechanics of the government or because of uh, jealousies or political, um, political pressures from one side or the other. Um, but going back to the let's say the more business part of it, um, I keep myself very busy, so I guess um, I guess I do okay. And I, I have a, a business manager, an executive assistant, who's who uh, follows my guidance about which way I want to go, where I think there's a an interesting marketplace that might be receptive to what it is I do. So. Yeah, it's a big part of it, uh, in conducting.
1: But you've also played in, or uh, you also conducted in, in, uh, places where, where you done, it's a bit unusual and it's like Baghdad and Iraq. And what drove you there? What attracted you to go there?
0: Well, the opportunity came up through, a through a group of artists that I'd been working with for a number of years. And I, so this just goes back more than 15 years, I think. And um, I was very curious. My experience is that, uh, that people are wonderful and receptive everywhere. doesn't matter where. And I enjoy that contact uh, with people with whom I've had no cultural or personal experience. And it's always... Um, confirmed that that uh, sense of uh, human interaction and, and sensitivity and, and I, I love the uh, inter- cult- intercultural um, um, communication. It was yeah. very funny. I have an anecdote for you because you mentioned Iraq. Mm-hmm. There were, while we were there, we were in a, we're, we were um rehearsing in and performing in the Ministry of Culture's brand new compound. And there were sharpshooters all around, and we had to be taken to the rehearsal site with a, with, um, a tank in front of us. But anyway, when we arrived there, it was a lovely environment. Everybody was wonderful. But we had it was an orchestra made up of people from all of the cultures around Iraq. So mainly you had Arabs and you had Kurds. And uh, I'm a Jew, not I don't practice, but it's my background. So I yeah. thought, well, this dynamic should be very interesting. not as that it's not that I said anything, but everybody knew. Anyway, mm-hmm. the point is is that uh, I had been mostly used to rehearsing uh, in Spanish. And I had an English Arabic, English Kurdish translator for me. And frequently frequently the lights would go out during the rehearsals and it was very frustrating. And so uh, we were rehearsing and once again, the lights went out. And so I just decided I would continue to gain time by making indications to the orchestra about this detail or this detail, and then it would be translated. Well, it had, had happened so many times that I just kind of lost it. And so I started giving my indications in Spanish but the translator didn't speak Spanish. She oh. only spoke English. So when the lights came back on, everybody looked up, what in the heck is he saying?
1: <laughs> well, there's a, There's a. Um, everybody says that music is a universal language. So um, probably, yeah, the moment people start playing, then it's, then it's equal, you know, it's then there's no other language anymore.
0: I think, you know, it may be universal when somebody's just listening. Yeah. But if you're a musician, it's not quite as universal. And in fact, my first class at the university was music history 101, and it was basically music of all parts of the world. And the professor was William Mall, and he said, music is not universal. So now at this point in my life, I've had enough experiences where I understood the point. So mm-hmm. for example, we could go to a Kabuki theater and we could enjoy it very much, but without the precision that only somebody from that culture would uh, would understand. Oh, and In Iraq, mm-hmm. we had a similar experience. We had a, a work for string orchestra. Mm-hmm. For a North American or a European, it would not be complicated at all but there were certain rhythms that just were not culturally native. They weren't culturally indigenous. And it was a real challenge, real Mm -hmm. challenge.
1: That's very interesting, but it makes, it makes sense that when you talk about that rhythm. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So how do you solve something like that?
0: Well, that in that case, um, You know, you have to behave like uh, a teacher and you have to work in detail and work out all the rhythms. But having said that, um, if you take, um, if you program a work by, let's say, um, well, for example, I did the Leonard Bernstein Symphonic Dances from West Side Story with a fabulous orchestra in Moscow. But there was one moment that they didn't know the work and they didn't know how everything fit together. And the concert master asked me "Would I mind if we did this slowly so that everybody could hear what was going on. And once they heard that, then, then they got it. Okay. Uh, and then um, if you have, let's say, a, um, the work by Gershwin, I don't know the concerto and F, which is a big, complex work, but it's very jazzy. Of course, um, sometimes the musicians don't quite—they uh, they don't get the uh, natural, the natural schvon, the, the swing to it. So uh, that's another challenge, uh, but it's always fun.
1: Yeah but now how do uh, how the the audiences how do they then receive it in these different cultures?
0: Um in the case of the works I've mentioned all it's always a, a huge reception I, mean, I think in part because it's in their ear yeah but it's not constantly played mm-hmm. so they're very receptive um especially with Bernstein and and with Gershwin especially with those two and also with Ginastera, always, Um, Marquez. Well, there's so many wonderful composers of the 20th century from from the Americas, and the music is infectious and usually very upbeat and very richly orchestrated, rhythmically dynamic.
1: But when you go to all these countries, do you, How much do you adapt then to that? You know what what they would want, what the, these audiences would enjoy when you when you do your programming.
0: Well, it depends on the context. But let's say let's say for example, it's part of a subscription series, mm. so you already have a public that has some idea of what an orchestra is about and what the experience is like, and um, and the the activity with the musicians is universal there you know the orchestra was something that evolved in central europe uh from beginning in the 17th century really and so there are customs and there are protocols so pretty much every orchestra in the world abides by those general protocols and the structure there's a hier- hierarchy and i've always thought that in why is an orchestra the the activity of making orchestral music why is that so well uh, received and absorbed and integrated in cultures around the world i mean in, in tokyo there are probably more orchestras than any other city on yeah. earth mm-hmm. uh, i think it's because the the musicians themselves and the public they understand that it's an idealized social paradigm so Uh, there's a structure of a conductor and concert master and principal players, and then the section players. The protocols are observed from, from the time that they tune the orchestra to the time that you give the downbeat. Everybody has the same material, but different parts. We begin, we have cadences, we have ups and downs, and we all arrive in harmony. So that's kind of a a paradigm that almost anybody could appreciate, um, wanting for the structure of their society to work as efficiently and harmoniously as as an
1: orchestra. Amazing, yeah. I haven't thought of that, but th- that's that's true. Could it be like that?
0: <laughs> well, well, it should be.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you started off playing the violin. I did. Mm. So at what uh, age did you start?
0: I was six and my grandfather had uh, had a violin that he played when he was a child and he had it carefully stored in his closet and he would tempt me every time I would stay with him and my grandmother. One day you'll, you'll play this from the time I was two or three
1: really? and so
0: at six I started. Uh, with that violin, which was which was much too big for me because it was a full-size violin. Oh, I, okay. You know, with children, you usually start with some, something smaller. And then I went on to do my uh, undergraduate studies in violin performance and composition. And I studied violin uh, at the university with a uh, renowned violinist, uh, Ruggiero Ricci, who uh, passed away several years ago. Uh, but I always wanted to conduct.
1: Really, but did you still then play on this violin, this old violin of your No,
0: no okay. I, I my grandmother bought me a much better violin. And, oh,
1: okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but they must have been very proud of you then.
0: I, I fought with my father like hell uh, to continue in music, but he was he was uh, happy later later in his life. Okay. Hmm. but my mother was always very supportive.
1: So did you know from a young age that you wanted to be a musician or that you wanted to be a conductor, you said?
0: Yes. Um, I started conducting in, in my high school, hmm. and uh, so I was 15, I think, 15, 16. And as an undergraduate, you're never permitted to uh, major in conducting. That's a graduate program. But I had the good fortune of going to a really fine music school, and it was the the head of conducting was one of the best known in the world. His name is he's now passed away, Gustav Meyer, who is one of uh, Bernstein's assistants. So he took me under his wing and allowed me to take the classes, to conduct uh, attend the conducting seminar uh, without credit, but he allowed me to participate. So. I was able to move ahead at a younger age than most.
1: Amazing. But what was it about conducting that you loved so much?
0: I had a subscription. My parents had purchased a subscription for me for every weekend at the Philharmonic in in Buffalo, very fine orchestra. And I think I was swept away with the... uh, sonic experience in the diversity of colors and of course the repertoire and that social paradigm also that i mentioned so i, I was uh, just overwhelmed you couldn't do anything else
1: really now this for me is also uh, amazing if i think um how an orchestra how a conductor can bring all these different sounds together into one sound this has always been fascinating to me
0: well we the conductor depends on his colleagues and uh and his own or her own um let's say management of uh complex human environment so there's a psychological element and we depend on the protocols and we depend on being uh, good professionals and and uh, good humor.
1: But now, uh, David, you've also um, represented the USA as a cultural ambassador. What what does that entail? Well,
0: there are diff- different programs within the United States State Department, all kinds of diplomacy, one of which is cultural diplomacy. And you can be invited by an organization orchestra in my case and if they should approach the embassy or if i should approach the embassy or the state department or the fulbright program there are many programs Mm -hmm. um then you are effectively doing um uh, what is it called citizen diplomacy or cultural diplomacy Mm -hmm. without being an uh, official diplomat but at one point i was a fulbright senior scholar So that's part of uh, a State Department program to promote um, um, positive relations between nations. I forget the exact phrase, but it's something like that.
1: But you've also done work in, is it Bolivia?
0: I worked in Bolivia for a long time, for Mm -hmm. 14 years as music director. And the initial, I think, three years of my my uh, position, I was the, I was partly or the position was partly underwritten by the Fulbright program. And the project was, um, and that was my first position as a music director, um, was to develop the organization. Because when I arrived, it was a very humble orchestra. I think there were 45 musicians, uh, two um two people on staff who would do all kinds of tasks. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to develop the the organization structurally, professionally, uh, economically. And so uh, we worked very hard. Uh, I remember at the beginning of the tenure from morning until midnight, um, putting the organization in order, creating a small administrative team growing the orchestral mass, which started at about 45. And when I left, it was about 75 musicians. Um, We needed infrastructure. So uh, it was a mission for me to find a home for the orchestra because they had been rehearsing here and performing there. So we secured a historic landmark building and we secured the funds to completely reconfigure the building and make it into a a good-sounding concert hall. And it was only for the orchestras, so the orchestra would be able to rehearse on the same stage that they performed. Um, So that, that was, you could call it, institution building. So that was part of the Fulbright project.
1: And did you enjoy this challenge? Because it seemed like a bit of a challenge.
0: Well, it was the right thing at the right time. Oh, okay. I took the position because at that time I was, when I started, I was living in Chicago. Mm. And I had two offers. Um, I was conducting a lot in Latin America, but just as a guest conductor. And I had a chamber orchestra that had very few concerts uh, in Chicago, which was underwritten by the uh, Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs. But then I had two more substantive offers. One was with a regional orchestra in Wisconsin, played very well, uh, but very few programs per year. And the other one was the National Symphony of uh, Bolivia, Mm -hmm. um, which was kind of, let's say, remote. (laughs) And my plan was to go back and forth between Chicago and, and La Paz, Bolivia, In any case, I called Kurt Mazur, and I explained to him that I have these two possibilities. Which one would you take? And he said, go to Bolivia. Mm. (laughs) And his point was that that, uh, it's the National Symphony. Mm. Uh, Your success will depend on what you build. Mm. And uh, so I went and uh, stayed there for much longer than, than I anticipated.
1: But amazing the work that you've done there.
0: Well, oh, I don't know. I loved. I loved pretty much every minute of it. And uh, you know, when you can see and when the progress is palatable, uh, it's very rewarding. Mm-hmm. And maybe the best thing of it all is that I met my wife there. So.
1: Oh wow! Oh, I love that.
0: But she's not from Bolivia.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah, I I, <laughs> well, I I was doing a a tour uh, in Central Asia, mm. and when I arrived in Turkmenistan, mm. I thought, my God, the economy here is is much worse than in Bolivia. But there are Soviet trained musicians. There are probably some people who might be interested. So I announced immediately auditions for. Uh, on Monday, that I would hold auditions on Wednesday. And I had, I think, 12 people who auditioned, and I hired a new concert master, very talented violinist. And then he moved uh, to Bolivia, and his wife and their one year old son moved to Bolivia one year later. Well, he was an excellent violinist, but he was very problematic. Uh, and, oh, okay. All kinds of problems of that nature. The two of them separated, mm-hmm. and about three years later, after their separation, I needed a I needed a Russian Spanish translator because I was going to hire somebody, and so my my executive assistant played the matchmaker and got us together. And I think my assistant was worried that I didn't have a, a personal life, and so anyway, oh, we okay. together and we've been married for
1: amazing oh, oh i love a love story <laughs> <laughs> this is an amazing story well the music brought you together then
0: i guess so i i never wanted to marry a musician but it, it worked out well
1: amazing
0: she's also uh, a, a yoga instructor
1: oh okay and do you do yoga
0: no, because I don't want my wife to order me around. So,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's true. My daughter also is a yoga instructor, but I don't mm. do yoga. Yeah, no, not for the same reason you do. That I don't want uh, to order me around. But um, I actually this is a good this is a good excuse that I can <laughs> use. <laughs> But, David, I want to ask you now, do people ask you if you are a um, family of the famous uh, composer, Handel?
0: They always ask, of course, mm. and my response is, why not?
1: Yeah, but, it could be.
0: <laughs> but uh, it's possible because my my Handel family
1: mm.
0: is from the same region.
1: Oh, um, I see. Okay.
0: So, when I say the same region, I mean a very small region. And then the family name is, it's not that common. No. And, uh, handle, it's either spelled with H A E or H A with the uh, umlaut.
1: Yeah.
0: Or H A. Mm. And our family has all of those versions. Um, so it's possible. I don't, am not certain. But, uh, I do know that uh, in our family is Heinrich Heine.
1: Oh, I see. Okay.
0: Now, I'm sure... Um, musician.
1: I'm sure. um I'm sure they must be, because it's not a very common surname.
0: No. No. And... Uh, there are... Well, there are theories. I don't know if they're theories, or I don't know if it's been historically proven yet. But um, that kind of uh, family name, very, very often um, um, equated with one or another trade, um, and the variants. Um, there's the 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 um, theory that Handel was Jewish. So that would even reduce further the, the the pool, but I don't know.
1: But I would like to think that I'm doing an interview with uh, the family, a family of <laughs> of Handel. <laughs> so let's let's say that it's true.
0: Okay. Yeah. While while I was living in Quito, I was living in a building by the the company was called schubert so my oh, building was schubert Handel yeah. living in schubert's and,
1: schubert building. Building
0: it. <laughs> and on and the street was austria
1: oh really oh wow oh this is perfect then <laughs> <laughs> but david um tell me now you you've accomplished so much you've done so much already what is the wish still for you for the future
0: well there's lots on the docket i have a a very large project, uh, recording project, with uh, the Royal Philharmonic of London. That's a big project, and it's still in the works. But uh, it's to record record the complete uh, symphonic, opera- operatic, and choral symphonic works of Alberto Ginastera, or Ginastera, the great Argentinian composer. Um, that's one project. And then with our mutual friend Ruben Ciliberti, we have a oh, yes. we have a program which we just just did in Quito, which was a wonderful experience and a huge success of um, works by Piazzolla, Gardel, and others of the period in new arrangements um, by Stefano Bartolucci, who's an Italian uh, arranger, pianist, conductor, uh, very, very gifted arranger. And in that program, Ruben, he sings and he's a fantastic, he has a fantastic voice and he's extremely expressive, but he engages with the public in, in a way that's unique, but he also dances on the program anywhere from balletic to tap and and then he plays the piano as well uh, with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. So it's a very dynamic, fun program. But some of the music is its not just beautiful or fun, but um, Renascerò by Piazzolla is a very dramatic, um, moving work. Or La Ballada de un Loco, which is another marvelous work. So it's a very substantive program with the contemporary language, of course, uh, but it's also uh, a spectacle.
1: Well, I think Ruben is such a great artist, really. I've I've done an interview with him as well, and uh, such a great uh, performer, and no, I just um, absolutely adore him.
0: As I do would I. love
1: to see, yeah, I would love to see this program.
0: Well, there should there should be some some um, videos going up online pretty soon. Ruben is in charge of that, um, and then we we'll, we hope to uh, tour with this with the Orlando Symphony Orchestra initially uh, throughout Florida, and then he and I present the program in different parts of the world. It's very attractive and an unusual program.
1: What a, what a wonderful idea to do a tour to Vienna.
0: We'd love to. Mm. We'd love to.
1: I think let's put it out there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then.
1: That would be great.
0: Yeah, I think it would be a big success. And, of course, Vienna is a city of music. So,
1: Absolutely. I think something like that would be amazing. But David, uh, this was so lovely talking to you. I'm so glad that Ruben um, introduced us and or, uh, got us into contact. Um, you have, you've done amazing work and, and also continue to do amazing work. So it was really a privilege to talk to you.
0: Well, thank you very much for the invitation. You're very kind and uh, it's been a pleasure and hopefully we'll be in touch again
1: yes definitely and when you come to vienna please let me know
0: of course of course
1: yeah. have a lovely afternoon and Likewise. hope to see and hope to see you soon
0: okay choose thank
1: you cheers.